Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26 with Pastor John King. Uh, today, uh, we're going to continue on in the book of Philippians. Turn with me, if you will. We'll be looking at uh, verses uh, 19 through 26 this morning. While you're turning there, I just want to remind you of the situation. Uh, Paul has, of course, been in prison for the last four years. And during this time, the apostle's been busy doing God's work. He's been preaching the gospel to his captors, the, the government, uh, government officials, and the praetorian guards. In fact, his singular focus was the furtherance of the gospel we saw in verse 12. It wasn't, you know, you've got to get me out of here. You know, can't you just get me out of this place? Uh, that wasn't Paul's message to the church. He had made it his life's ambition to see Jesus Christ exalted over every circumstance, even the painful ones. And he's presently being chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. He's being criticized by other preachers of the gospel. And he's also awaiting the final decision from Caesar uh, concerning his ultimate fate. He knew it was very possible that he could be judged a traitor to Rome and be executed. As one writer commented on uh, concerning Paul's imprisonment, he said, because of Paul's chains, Christ was known. And because of Paul's critics, Christ was preached. But because of Paul's crisis, honor was given to Christ. And so in all of this, Paul was able to rejoice. You talk about freedom from worry and anxiety. I don't know what you're going through today. I know some of you are going through a very difficult time today, right at this moment. But Paul is going to help us. He's going to explain today by the power of the Holy Spirit the joy that he has for his future prospects. Let's read our passage. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Yet nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Heavenly Father, we need this message today. You know our struggles. You know our problems. As we've been saying all along, we know life brings many storms. And oftentimes, Lord, you know that we're either about to enter one or we're in the middle of one or we're coming through one. And it's all by your grace. It's all by your strength. And so, Lord, I pray that we would draw strength today from these words of encouragement, 
these words of truth that were written to us 2,000 years ago and still reach our hearts today. Go before us now as we study your word together. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we see in the very beginning at the outset here, is, is, is how to do something we don't like to do very much. And that is to wait on God. And Paul's going to show us how to wait on God with a hopeful expectation. We were on the phone last night with a dear uh, family member, and she, she wanted God's answer. She wanted to know, you know, the direction that God was taking her and her family. And it was really painful for her to have to wait. You know, and that's how we are. We, we don't like to wait. We want the answer and we want it now. And so we have to learn. And so as we learn how to walk by faith in God, we learn to do it by His promises, through His wisdom, and with the help of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. We see a stark contrast between the world we live in and the world to come. You came to faith in Christ because of his great love and kindness. And because he has placed a longing in your heart to want to be with him. And sometimes it can be very hard to wait for his deliverance. Whether it's from a present situation or when he finally calls you home to paradise. In verse 20, Paul says, Speaking of that expectation, he says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be found ashamed. Paul starts out with optimism. Despite his circumstances, it's once again in Paul, and it's for us when we can do this, is ask the Lord to give us the ability to see the big picture. To see the big picture in life when things aren't going our way. In Romans chapter 8, Paul stated that if, if you and I were to weigh our present suffering against the weight of the future glory that will re be revealed in heaven, it would be virtually unworthy of any comparison whatsoever. You see it in Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so Paul says here in our passage today, I have an earnest expectation. That, that word translated from the Greek in our language means to look ahead with concentration. And it's often a, an example or an illustration. It's like a watchman on the bow of a ship stretching out his neck as he looks for land. Paul used this phrase, earnest expectation, once before in Romans chapter 8. And he described, it was described there as an anxious and persistent expectation. And what was he expecting? Something better to unfold, either in creation itself and in the children of God. And, and notice what he says here, Romans 8, 20 through 23. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know, we believe here in Calvary Chapel that there will be a millennial reign where Christ will rule the earth 
from Jerusalem. And the nature and animals and the nature of animals and their relationship with us will be as it was in the garden once. We also know, he says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. But not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, in other words, the down payment that God has given us by the Holy Spirit placed in our bodies, placed in our lives, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. Last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection. And so no matter what is happening to you in life, and I know sometimes life is right here, and all you can see is the misery and the struggle and the worry and the fear. You can't see anything else. And God would like you to step back and realize the big picture and the hope that you have. This expectation of good. And when you and I can live this life like Paul did, this, this concentration, if you will, it is only because we're confident in our hearts and minds that God will do what he promised. So if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are full of doubt. But you can have his promise. Romans 8, again, continuing on uh, in 24 and 25. Paul said, we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. The Christian life is a life of waiting. It's a life of perseverance. And you cannot do it without God's help. And so he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing, back to our text, nothing I shall be ashamed. He's not ashamed of the work he has done for God or the work that God has done in him. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ, notice, will be magnified in my body. Christ will be magnified. <laughs> to be magnified is to deem or declare something great. To get glory and praise in a thing. And it should be in Christ and the work that he does through each of us so that Christ can be exalted. When we say in my body, what's he talking about? He's talking about his manner of living. The things that people see in us, our deeds, our actions, the words that we speak. And notice he says, whether by life or by death. You see, God's promises look to our present and our future lives in eternity. Amen? God's, God is complete. He's complete in what he provides for us. One writer said this. He said, Paul wanted Christ to be magnified in his life, whether it be by life or by death. Paul was prepared for the, quote, if nots in life. He wanted to live, but if not... He wanted to die not being ashamed of Christ. He was more concerned about his testimony than the verdict of his trial before Caesar Nero. Now it's a fair question, isn't it? You say, well, that depends on what you're about to ask me. Okay, well, when somebody examines your life, 
through all of its ups and downs, somebody that gets to know you well, a neighbor, a relative, a coworker, and perhaps, and hopefully, they comment about your cheerfulness, your optimism, or the willingness to help. How do you do? How do you respond? How do you respond to that? Do you or do I point them to Jesus? Do we seek to magnify Jesus or do we seek to magnify ourselves? That's a fair question. I mean, God gives us those opportunities quite often. First of all, we want to be the type of people that when somebody looks at our life, they can, they can scratch their head a little bit and go, how is, how is he, how is she able to deal with it? Why are they so happy? Why are they so happy to tell me about Jesus? Hopefully that's you and I. But when we're given the opportunity to give a reason for our faith, who do we point them to? Remember this, friends. Biblical hope is not just crossing your fingers or wishful thinking. You know, in the eyes of many, when you say hope, that's, that's not something they want to hear. Especially those who maybe you work for and they demand performance. They demand results. They don't want to see you say, hopefully I'll show up to work or hopefully I'll get the job done. But hope means an entirely different thing to us, to a believer. It's based on the testimony of Jesus being a personal reality in your life. Having trusted in him and his word to be faithful and true. So how about you and I? Are we prepared for when things do go against us? And we know that they will from time to time. Even the threat of death. You recall from our study uh, several months ago through the book of Daniel, the three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were facing imminent death in the fiery furnace for refusing to bow down to the giant golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You remember that story. And the king asked these young Hebrew men a rhetorical question. See, he didn't want to see them put to death. He liked them. They served him well. And he said in uh, Daniel 3.15, But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And we know their answer. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You see, like Paul, these young men, and hopefully you and I, are prepared for the if-nots in life. When things don't work out the way we would hope. We still cling to our faith in Christ. In verses, today's verse, uh, in verses 21 through 24, we see the contrast that Paul gives us. He said, he's going to tell us about the blessings of life in Christ and the blessings of death with Christ. He says the famous verse, for many, it's, Perhaps a life verse. For Paul, it was his life's creed. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he starts with the blessings of life. My life is devoted to Christ. Christ is the aim, the goal of my life. 
See, this is Paul's purpose for living in a nutshell. And again, we notice his present situation. He's in chains. He has no privacy. He cannot move around like he would like to. He has a very uncertain future from a worldly standpoint. So how did Paul, how was he able to maintain that high level of motivation, if you will? How was he able to go through with, with his given situation? Having lost everything, he still maintained the thing that cannot be taken away from us. And that's the purpose for living. And that is to bring glory to Christ. Why is that? Christian, because Jesus is the origin of our life. He is the essence. He must increase and we must decrease. He is our role model and he is the reward of our life. See, we're all living for something. Often life is measured by how we are living, you know, how, how comfortable we're living or what we want to achieve. Uh, pleasure, power, possessions, prestige and positions, you know, all these things that the world promises us. But the life of King Solomon shows us what it's like to have all of these things. He was both the richest and wisest man in the entire world. And yet notice what he says about that in Ecclesiastes 2. Verse 4, he said, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all were who, were in, who were in Jerusalem before me. And he goes on in verse 8 and 9, talking about the silver and gold and the treasures that he had. He was the richest man in the world, perhaps the richest man who ever lived. And see, he says in verse 9, So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. But verse 10, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, and I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. And finally, he says, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had told. And indeed, all of it was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. You know, Solomon, he, he tried it all. He had 700 wives. He had 300 live-in girlfriends. He dazzled the world with his wealth and his wisdom. Yet notice his final analysis concerning the wise and the fool. They both reached the same ending in life. Ecclesiastes 2.17. He says, therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. All is vanity and grasping for the wind. See, Solomon had everything and he hated life. Paul had nothing and he was joyful. Solomon felt his life had no purpose. Paul knew that to live is Christ. So having looked at the blessings of life, now we look, Paul looks at the blessings of death. He says, and to die is gain. To die is an advantage. 
to die is not, you know, it's the state. It's the profits from an investment. Now, I need to be clear here. That's not the act of dying. Nobody has that desire. It can be very painful and miserable and terrifying. But life after death. You see, for the Christian, death is a beginning. It's a birth into the freedom of eternity. Free from sin. Free from sorrow. Free from sickness, worry, and temptation. Death reveals your true self, where you fully discover who you are in Christ. It's where real life and eternal life begins. Kent Hughes wrote this. He said, Paul's confidence in this life extended into death. Paul's death would also mean that his righteousness in Christ would have its full effect. In this world, Paul was still beset by his own sins. But in death, the battle would be over. We read from Revelation this morning. Revelation 21.4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. No sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So if to die is gain, if it's a reward from the investment of trusting Christ in this life, my question is, what is your investment strategy? You know, who's your eternal financial advisor? We see the markets, we see the money world is really it's crumbling right now. So what is your investment strategy? You see, Jesus provided both the divine wisdom for both this life, the parable of the talents, we know that. We know that we're to be wise with the things God gives us. And the next, Matthew 6, 19 and 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now Paul reaches here in verse 22, one of life's dilemmas. We have a lot of dilemmas in life. We have a lot of decisions that are hard to make. And Paul is not one that's free of that. He says, but if I live in, on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now, in case you might have been thinking that Paul has a death wish, notice what he says. He says, if I live on in the flesh, it means there will be fruit. There will be advantage. There will be profit from what his labor. And what, is he gonna, what's he, what kind of fruit is he talking about? It's the things we should all desire to see. That God's kingdom would advance. That more churches would be planted and strengthened. That more people would come to Christ. And so, he said, if I, if I continue living this life, this is, this is fruit. I want to be a part of that. That should be your heart's desire. He says, but yet, what I shall choose, I can't tell. He says, given the choice, he actually admits that he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what he would do. Because he knows it's in God's hands. And he continues. He goes a little further in the dilemma with verse 23. He says, For I am hard pressed between the two. Uh, King James Version says, I'm in a strait. 
My mind is impelled or disturbed from either side. I don't, I don't know what to do at this point. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He knows the promise of eternity. Now Paul, even though he didn't have this morbid death wish, he was honest enough to say that if the Lord called him home, it would fulfill a deep desire. It would fulfill a deep desire for the Lord to call him home. That word desire is really a, a longing and a craving. After all that Paul had been through, we can understand that. All the shipwrecks and the beatings and his ministry and all the things that had gone on. And now he's in prison and he could be sitting before Caesar and could be taken to his death. And so he has a desire this desire to depart and be with Christ. Now, that word depart, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting word in the Greek. It's to unloose, as though you were loosening the lines of a ship set to sail to a new destination. And I, I kind of like to think about that. When you're, when you're getting ready to uh, depart and be with the Lord, you know, in this case, he says, you know, if I'm going to die, or maybe you've, you're going to be relocated. Maybe the Lord is relocating you. Maybe you sense God's call that you're going to move for various situations. And, and I like it because you're on that, that ship, uh, sort of a ship of grace, if you will. Call me kind of romantic or weird. I don't know what you want to say. But God wants to sail you to that destination, whether it's your eternal destiny to be with him or to that new place he's got prepared for you. Now he says, I have a longing and a craving to be unloosed, to set sail for paradise, to be with Christ. Now this, this should put, a, uh, put a, an, an end to the thought of soul sleep. Okay, because we know from the thief on the cross, Jesus promised that today you will be with me in paradise. So the notion that when you die, your soul goes to sleep is not biblical. He said, to be with Christ, which is far better. In other words, to be more advantageous or useful. It's not useful for you to be going to, you know, into paradise just to go to sleep. He says, far better. You know, when we celebrate the life of a dear brother or sister who has gone to be with the Lord, we cling to this promise. You'll hear that at every every funeral you ever attend. That's Christian. That's Bible-based. And it's not purgatory where we spend our time paying for our sins, our venial sins, until Jesus comes, awaiting His return. It's none of those things. No, it is paradise to be with the Lord, to be present with Him. So Paul and you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a purpose for life and in death. He says, again though, you see him, he's still wrestling, verse 24, nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. In other words, to stay. Given the condition and the, and the, and the situation. Paul has a sense that his time to depart has not quite come yet. His purpose in fulfilling God's call to minister to the churches still remains. I like what this one writer said. 
Christ was more important to him, Paul, than life itself. And others were more important to him than being in heaven with Christ. That's a good perspective. So everyone lives for something. And the question is, what is it? What are you, what are you living for? You guys know how sad it is to see somebody in a nursing home and they've felt that they've lost their life's purpose because they haven't placed their faith in Christ. You see, they've built their life on everything but a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they think that because they can no longer function as they wish, that there's no longer a purpose for them to live. The reasons given for the rise in euthanasia across and overseas and in our country. One of the biggest reasons is because a person can no longer do the things that they enjoy doing. And those are hard. I'm not trying to make light. Of, look, those are hard and difficult situations. And we've all probably come in contact with it. Or you will at some point. We also see the tragedy of suicide, especially among teenagers. And the, as I said, the increased acceptance of euthanasia for the elderly. And so our modern medical technology brings with it many moral and ethical dilemmas. Difficult questions with, about when to resuscitate or to come off a ventilator or a feeding tube. See, that's real life, the things we deal with. But everyone dies at some point. And death can only be gained if there's a greater value on the other side of life. If you know Jesus as Savior, then you are the beneficiary of His work on the cross. 2 Timothy 1.10 But it has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here's an illustration on how it works for a believer, somebody who's facing death. One writer spoke of a person in his life. He said, several weeks before Andrew Chong, a beloved physician and a former elder in the church I pastored for many years, passed away. He was taken to Northwestern Hospital in Chicago to have a stint cleared of blockage. The procedure was invasive, and after some time, the surgeon came out and indicated that he could not go on because there was too much bleeding. He said, you better get your family here. He may not make it through the night. So all the children were rushed to Andrew's bedside, where they gathered, weeping and saying their goodbyes. Andrew had just come out of the anesthetic and was in intense pain and unable to speak. Seeing his family's distress, he made a curious motion with his finger, which they finally understood as a request for a pen. Of late, he had been unable to write in a straight line. But now, very slowly and with intense deliberation, he wrote 12 words on a single column. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Andrew anchored the column with the word hallelujah. The writing of that last word took him a full minute as he made sure he spelled it correctly. He was always the precise surgeon. 
And then he spoke. And he said, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And so through the life of men like Andrew Chong and the life of Paul, he shows us that as Christians, we can literally have the best of both worlds. A life devoted to Christ is an investment for an eternal reward with Christ. In our final two verses for today, we see that faith always waits. Faith always waits. He says, in being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy of life. You see, from Paul's perspective, he does plan to stay with them as long as God allows. And he says, for why? For your progress and joy of faith. For the furtherance and the advancement of the gospel. His gladness over the work of Christ in their lives. You see, he desires to see progress in our lives. We're, we're, if, we're, if we're moving backwards or we're standing still, or we're sitting static and on a plateau on our faith, it's, it's not a good place to be. It's not what God desires. He desires that we continue to move forward in our life, in our faith in Christ. We have time for all the accomplishments and, you know, the simple things, the chores in life, the grass that needs to be mowed, the projects around. We have time for that. But we want to make sure that our priority is our progress in the faith. And we know from earlier in this letter, Paul said, and I don't have a slide for this, first, uh, verse 6, you can see it over here in, in chapter 1 of Philippians. Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he closes, he says, with your rejoicing for me, that it might be more abundant in Christ. You know, Paul would live to see them again. He would not be executed for another five years. He would be released from prison, history tells us. And he would actually have a reunion with this, uh, these saints and many others. And that's how it is for us. We, we, you know, we know a brother that's going through a very difficult time right now. When he sees you and we see him as he comes out of that, we're going to rejoice. We're going we're gonna to say, you know what, My, our, our rejoicing is going to be even more abundant for the work that Christ did to re preserve his life through this recent situation he's gone through. Their next reunion would bring an even greater confidence in Christ. That's how it works. So faith always waits. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word... I do hope. Amen. Amen. I just want to say one more thing. I've had some, several conversations with some of you, even today. Some of you are on the verge of making big decisions and big plans. And you are, you know, the Lord is, is loading up. He's got that ship ready for you. You're going you're gonna to set sail soon uh, in his timing for a new destination. And, uh, I like what uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll said. He, you know, he said, after logging 50 years of ministry and thinking that if I had a few more gray hairs on my head, that making decisions in life would be easier. <laughs> and he said, and that wasn't the case. And he says, we're all dealing with our own dilemmas. And we need to take that opportunity to place Christ as a top priority 
It's so easy to get stuck between the this or that and forget what's most important life in life, and that is to live is Christ. And as we evaluate two reasonable options, we should ask ourselves questions like this. Well, which of these is more Christ-like? Which will bring him greater glory? Which will be better to advance the proclamation of the gospel? And in that process, he writes, our own personal priorities will start to diminish. And Christ will be honored. Amen? Amen. We're going to prepare to take communion this morning. Uh, And as we prepare our hearts for communion... We're going to see, you know, Jesus is the supreme example of a hope for the future. We see that Jesus knew that he would fulfill his mission on earth. He knew that his body would suffer, his emotions would suffer, and he would experience the shame and guilt of our sin and the rejection of the Father for a time in order to fulfill the plan of our redemption. Excuse me. Jesus had confidence that the Father would raise him from the grave even though he would express his desire for another way as he prayed in the garden. And you're familiar with this prayer that the Lord had. Matthew 6, or 26, 39. As he went a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus faced dilemma by trusting the Father. Before we take communion, if you're a visitor today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to share in communion with us. For visitors today that do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I would invite you to receive him. Surrender your life to Him. You know, recognize your need for a Savior. Realize that you're a sinner and that you fall short of His glory and His grace. Ask Him into your heart. Seek His forgiveness. Repent of your sins and come to Him. Ask Him to be your Savior and your Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.